All right, Genesis chapter 41 is our text today. I invite you to turn with me. We're going to read a good portion of this uh, passage of Scripture, verses 1 through 36. But before I do, uh, somebody's going to be really happy with the ne- next announcement. There is a blue Ford Taurus with their lights on, and we want to save your, your battery. We want to save you from having a bad day, okay? So would you go ahead and feel free to BB7W595. Your lights are on. If you'll take uh, care of that, that'll be great. Now, if 20 of you get up and leave, I'm going to be concerned because you're looking for an excuse to to go. Uh, Another thing on the wedding I want to mention is Friday night. We had such a blessed time at the Spencer's home, and many of the students came, and um, it it was just such a sweet time of fellowship, and thank you. uh, Thank you, many of you, for coming to that, and uh, what, what what a great, great time. Also blessed today, I have some family and friends from out of state and out of mind that are here today, just kidding, from out of state, uh, Justin and Amy Green, where, where are y'all? Is that, there's the Green family and uh, their daughters, beautiful daughters. Man, Justin built our home in Arkansas. I think he's the finest home builder in, in the great state of Arkansas. And so, uh, Justin, uh, we sure do love you and your family, brother. God bless y'all. What a, I, I taught a class this morning on uh, making disciples, and they, they showed up, and, and I thought, man, what a, what a blessing. And also, some dear, dear people are in our church today, and that would be my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law, okay? So Evelyn and, and Michelle, where are y'all? There you are. Bless y'all. Let's welcome them. Amen. Beautiful ladies inside and out, and uh, my mother-in-law is 70, and she looks like she's about 50, maybe. And uh, did I get that right, Evelyn? Did I say all that? <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, it's the truth, and we're so, so blessed to have them with us over the weekend, and um, I'm a blessed man. I, I sure, sure am. My son, Bryant, he is um, w- with a bunch of students up in New Mexico at a... Uh, camp with Prestonwood Baptist Church this week. My other son, Layton, he's working. Excuse his absence. He's working as a tennis coach over the weekend. He'll be back with us tomorrow. And, and of course, my sweet daughter's about to get married. And uh, I just feel so very blessed. Guys, let's enjoy the days that God gives us. Your life and my life can be taken. It can be taken in a moment. I do want to have a couple things on my epitaph as I'm uh, going into glory, if you would put no regrets, if I live it and I, and I maintain it, put on my tombstone no regrets in Romans 10:9. I say all these things as I prepare to go hiking in New Mexico with a group of men from our church. I really want to return in, in one piece. And so they talk repelling and white water rafting, and I'm like, oh my goodness. But we're looking forward to it. Be a great time of fellowship with some men in our church. So let's talk about dreams. Y'all okay? Let's talk about the supernatural phenomenon of dreams and visions. You say, well, you sound like Sigmund Freud. No, not really. Sigmund Freud, a hundred years ago, did write a book, though, entitled The Interpretation of Dreams. He said that dreams reflect the dreamer's secret desires or his wishes. The dreamer dream indicates confusion, and the dream reveals some of that confusion and the deepest inner recesses of the heart. A professor picked up this ideal, Dr. Salman Akhtor, a professor of psychiatry at Thomas Jefferson University Medical School. He said, Here, here's what I think is going on in your dreams. Let's say you have a fight with your boss. 
and you're unable to actuate your real emotions and you would love to just lay hands on your boss and just really give him a piece of your mind, a piece of your hand. He said, but you can't. And so you take that angst and you take that anger to bed with you and all of a sudden in the dreamland, in the dream world, you're in a safari. And in this safari, you have this high-powered rifle and you see a lion and you shoot and you kill the lion. And so what you're doing is you're actuating that anger out in your dreamland. Now, some people say there's some validity to that. Other people don't. But what does the Bible say about dreams and and visions. You might be surprised that in the Old Testament and in the New, the Bible has a lot to say about dreams. Uh, Dr. Jack Deere, who used to teach Old Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary, he says one of the primary ways that God spoke and God speaks today is through the supernatural phenomenon of dreams. And he gives some examples. For example, Joseph in a dream was told not to divorce Mary because the child that she conceived was of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 1, 20 and 21. After Jesus was born, God told Joseph in a dream, take Mary and take Jesus to Egypt, and in so doing, you will protect and save their lives from Herod, Matthew 2, 13. And this is an interesting one. Numbers 12 6 says, quote, when a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams, end of quote. One of the more famous ones is Daniel 4, 16, where Daniel is interpreted, he interprets the King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Agabus, the prophet in the New Testament, has a dream, has a vision of a coming famine to Jerusalem. And so proliferated throughout our Bibles are these supernatural phenomenon of, of dreams and, and visions, and, and there's no greater example, I don't think, in all the Bible than, than in the life of Joseph. Remember, Joseph had dreams, and because of his dreams, it got him in trouble. He had dreams that his mom and dad and all of his brothers would one day bow down to him, and he, maybe he's a little arrogant, and he shared that with them, and they got angry with him. They're like, what, you lost your mind? You're, you're the youngest. We're not all going to come bowing down to you one day, but he had this dream. He also interpreted the dream of the cupbearer who worked for Pharaoh, and he interpreted the dream of the baker who also worked for Pharaoh. We looked at that last week, but now Pharaoh has a dream. And for us today in America, it's hard to really describe the preeminence and the power and the sovereign despot that the Pharaoh was. In this day and age, the Pharaoh was arguably the, the most powerful monarch in the world as Egypt was one of the most powerful leading armies and nations of the world. And our friend Joseph has made his way out of Israel, if you will, out of the Holy Land, Hebron, and he travels in a caravan as a slave, and he's sold into slavery, and Potiphar, the chief executioner of Pharaoh himself, takes Joseph and makes him in charge of his home and his household and all of his property until Pharaoh, Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of indiscretion. And so Joseph is placed in prison. He arrives in Egypt at age 17 and at the age of 30. We read what happens in Genesis chapter 41. Let, let, let me read it to you. It's a powerful text. It'll take a few minutes to read it or a few moments anyhow. Hope you're not in a big hurry. Good. Then it came to pass... At the end of two full years, now two full years refers to the time 
where Joseph is in prison after he interprets the dream of the baker and the butler, and the butler forgets Joseph. And so for two more years, he's already been in prison many years, but now two more full years. And now Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows, so Pharaoh awoke. Verse 5, he slept and dreamed a second time, and suddenly seven heads of grain came up, one stalk plump and good. And then behold, seven thin heads blighted by the east wind sprang up after them, and the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed, it was a dream. The reason the writer says indeed is because it was so real. Pharaoh didn't know if he was having a vision or a dream. This was so real to him, he had to almost do a, whoa, wait a minute, I'm, I, that was actually a dream. Verse 8, now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and he called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. And Pharaoh told his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh saying, uh-oh, whoops, I remember my faults this day. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants, and he put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, that would be, that would be Potiphar, remember? Both me and the chief baker, we each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. And there was a young Hebrew man with us there, <laughs> a, a servant of the captain of the guard. Doesn't, doesn't mention his name, just remembers that he was a servant. That's interesting. And we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass, just as he, Joseph, interpreted for us, the butler and the baker, so it happened. And he restored me, you, Pharaoh, restored me to my office, and you hanged him, the baker. And things start really getting interesting now. Then Pharaoh sent, and he called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved and changed his clothing and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it, but I have heard, I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream and you can interpret it. So Pharaoh answered, Joseph answered Pharaoh, and he said, oh, church, the first things out of his mouth, after being incarcerated, after being falsely accused and mistreated, after spending years and years in prison, after being forgotten, the first thing on Joseph's lips is, I praise my God. Isn't that amazing? He gives God the praise. He says, it is not in me, God. God is the one who will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I stood on the bank of the river. He said, Brother Danny, you're going to read all that again? The yep, sure am. Here we go. Suddenly, seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then, behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt. Such ugliness I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. I just think that's funny for some reason. He's just like, man, them are some ugly cows. Ugly. 
U-G-L-Y ain't got no alibi, they're ugly. Ugly cows is what I saw. And the gaunt and the ugly cows ate up the first seven, ate up the fat cows. And when they had eaten them up, no one would have even known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. And so I awoke. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk full and good. Then behold, seven heads with withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads, so I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one God. (laughs) I love it. Elohim. Elohim, by the way, as you remember, is the one true creator God. All powerful, all sufficient, one true God. Listen, not one of the puny gods of the Egyptians, but the one true God of heaven and earth. And Joseph has given him praise. He says, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. So Joseph now is interpreting. And the seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind, they also, they are seven years, here it is, of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. I don't know how many times he's going to talk about God. I'm, I'm a little bit convicted. Are you? I mean, after all, I've been trying to serve God. I've been trying to do the right thing. And here I am, falsely accused. I've been mistreated. I'm incarcerated in this stinking dungeon. And God, you could have done something about it. But Joseph didn't do any of that. He just just loves God. He loves God when God is on the mountaintop, man shining down, blessings and favor. And he loves God when when God, his face is turned. And God's sovereign permissive will is allowing trouble and difficulty to invade his otherwise tranquil life. And I don't know about you, this is deeply convicting to me. I can praise God when my family is well, when when I got a little money in my pocket, and, and man, there's unity in the church and things are going great. It's easy to praise God. But the converse of all of that, it's difficult to praise God. That's why I love preaching the Bible, because it just tells it like it is. But Joseph is praising God. God is going to bring this to pass. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. This is so funny. Listen, if you don't have a sense of humor, you need to get one. This is funny. Joseph is going, now, what I would recommend you do, and he's like, basically, who am I to recommend anything to the Pharaoh? But here, and he's creating his resume. He doesn't know it. He is creating verbatim his resume. Listen, God loves to promote and bless those who think they don't deserve it. And God loves to pass over the people of entitlement. And he likes to give it to others. 
Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. You're with me? One-fifth, 20%, double tithe. Do this, Pharaoh. Do it. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh. And let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve. What an ingenious plan. Are you with me, church? Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. Oh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have the opportunity to read it. Over the next few moments, oh, Holy Spirit, sweet Holy Spirit, would you speak to us through the preaching of the word? Thank you for the public reading of the word. Thank you, God, that we are a people of the book that we don't want to just mention it and forget it, but God, we want to mention it and focus on it and highlight on it because we believe, God, this is your word to us today. And we need it, Lord. We need you to speak. Oh, God, we need you. And we're asking you, we humbly ask the sovereign God of the universe would speak to his people here at Great Hills and we would listen. And Lord, whatever you tell us, give us the strength. God, give us the faith to obey what you tell us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What I'd like to do this morning is three things. Number one is give some explanatory comments about the text, okay? Explanation of the text. Number two, I would, I would like to draw some points of application. You say, what in the world? Seven fat cows, seven ugly cows, seven nice stalks of grain, seven bad stalks of grain. What in the world has that got to do with a sophisticated Austinite in 2016 in the great city of Austin in the great state of Texas? Please pray tell me, what in the world has that got to do with me? Listen, it's got a lot to do with us if we will humble ourselves and listen to the Word of God. Third thing I want to do is just take a point of order as a pastor, as your pastor and share with you some, some, some words, <laughs> just some concluding words on this text, and uh, I hope you hear my heart on it, because I want to share with you some very personal things that I happen to believe. First of all is the explanation of the text. Pharaoh has a dream. In fact, he has two dreams. In verses 1 through 7, cows and heads of grain are the primary subjects of his dream. Henry Morris, writing in his commentary, says this, the cows must have impressed Pharaoh, especially in a religious sense. Listen carefully. The cow was the emblem of Isis. Now, Isis is one of the revered Egyptian goddesses of fertility, okay? Not the crazed, demonic-possessed people in Syria. This is a totally different Isis. This is the goddess of fertility. In the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the chief scripture of ancient Egypt, the Book of the Dead, the god of vegetation was Osiris, Osiris, and it is represented as a great bull accompanied by seven cows, end of quote. In other words, these images of cows and grains, Pharaoh recognizes this in his dream. This is significant, but here's what's really significant. Pharaoh doesn't understand that it's not Isis and Osiris. It's not any of those fake, false, puny, false gods that are giving him this dream. If it was, then the Egyptian magicians and wise men could have interpreted it. Nope. But the God of the universe, almighty God who has his servant in a prison, 
He is the one speaking to Pharaoh. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes, according to Proverbs. What a sight for Pharaoh to see. Here you have fat cows being eaten by carnivorous, cannibalistic cows. This is really an interesting dream. And then he sees thin heads of grain swallowing, engulfing the healthy, plump heads of grain. Calls for the magicians. Oh, you guys, you're astrologers. You know the hieroglyphics. You know the sacred writings of the Egyptians. Here is my dream. Give me the interpretation. And they're scratching their noggins and they're going, man, sorry, Pharaoh, we, we just don't know. This is beyond us. And then comes our man. <laughs> he stinketh. Long hair. Ooh, got some body odor going down. They didn't give him no right guard, no, no perfume. No, what do you, not perfume. What do you call it, guys? Cologne. Yes, cologne. And they didn't have any of that. Man, he comes out, his hair's all matted. He's probably got some fleas on his body. And, and by the way, the Egyptians are meticulously clean. From the fingernails to the feet below. I mean, you had to be clean, especially entering into the presence of the most powerful man in the world, Joseph, forgotten by his family, forgotten by his boss, forgotten by his friends, remembered by God. And in a moment, Pharaoh, I mean, uh, Joseph's going to go from the pit to the palace. He's going to go from obscurity to one of the most auspicious, conspicuous, powerful positions in all the world. He's going to be the prime minister of Egypt, and all of this is going to happen in a moment's time because Joseph's been faithful, and Joseph has waited on God. But they dress him up, they give him a bath, they shave his head, and they enter him, usher him into the presence of Pharaoh. Now, now some key verses. And if you would, just jot these down real quickly as I'm going to go quickly. Verse 16 is key to me. Joseph could have said, no way, man. Stay away from me. I'm not interested in dreams. I'm, the last time I dreamed a dream, my brothers threw me into the pit. Last time I dreamed a dream, or another person dreamed a dream, I interpreted it for him, and he forgot me for two years. Forget it. And by the way, God, forget you too. He didn't do that, did he? No, verse 16, he says... Um, the NIV translates it, I cannot do it, but God. By the way, that's great theology. Who, who's, who, who needed to hear that? I can't do this. Conjunction, but God. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. No resentment, just integrity and character. Number two, I want to highlight verses 25 and 28. Joseph does not say, I will give you the answer. I am brilliant. I am the son that my father loves. You, by the way, he gave me a coat of many colors. I'm just special. It's by, by, by the way, it's time you people recognize that I am Joseph. About time you got me out of that dusty dungeon dark place. Okay, now what, what was your question? Favorite? No, no, none of that. None of that arrogance. God doesn't use arrogant people. They have a, a moment of time. But God doesn't give arrogant people a substantive life or ministry. Verse 32, again, Joseph acknowledges God and gives him the recognition. He says, Elohim, creator, sovereign God that he is. And Pharaoh's probably scratching his head saying, Ella who? Ella what? Who? Who? It doesn't matter. 
Pharaoh's like, it, it doesn't matter. T- just, just give me the answer to my dream. Interesting, in Genesis 32, verse 2, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. That's Jehovah. That's the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But in this case, it's capital G, little o, little d. That is the difference between two Hebrew words of Jehovah and the difference in that word in Elohim. Elohim, creator God, Jehovah, is the covenant-keeping God of Israel. That's why Joseph does not appeal to the name of Jehovah because he he would be really clueless. And so he uses the name Elohim. Verses 33 through 36, Joseph proposes such a such a genius of a plan. Take a fifth, take 20%, double the tithe, and store it away. And here is what's going to happen. When the time of famine comes, Pharaoh, it's all, it's going to be okay. I love people like that. I tell you, in what leadership positions I have in, in, in our church and in our convention, I, when, when, when I'm all rattled and when I'm all nervous and, and God brings people around me who are, who are people like, just chill out, Brother Danny. I know you have a propensity to worry. It's going to be okay. I'm going to take care of this. Don't you worry about this. You know, when I get in trouble, church, is when I start dabbling and worrying about things, I have no right to do that. I, I, I don't know about you, but my, one of my great weaknesses as a leader is I think I got to do everything, and I think I got to help everybody, and I think I got to be the answer to everybody's problems, and God says, you're a nitwit. You don't, don't do that. Let other people do what they do, and you do that small little thing that I've commissioned you do, and that's preach the Word of God. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. I, I like that. Application of the text. Let's, let's, uh, look, let's look at this. Number one. Did these events really happen? Ah. Number two, do things like this really happen today? The answer to the first question is unequivocally, absolutely, inexorably, yes, yes. God said it, guys. He didn't stutter. Joseph has dreams. Pharaoh has dreams. God gave the answer to the dream. Listen to this. You say, well, I'm more of a New Testament kind of guy, Brother Danny. Well, praise the Lord. I am too. I like it all. Old and new. Acts 2.17 says, quoting verbatim, Joel 2.28, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, end of quote. Kim Furman was a missionary with her husband, Jack. Spells it J-A-C-Q-U-E-S, Jacques. I love that. Jack, Kim. They were members of a church I pastored in in Virginia, and heeded the call of God, went to, and I went to the very country that they served in Africa. It's, It's one of the most dark demonic places I'd ever been in my life. And they moved their whole family and their lives there in this country in Africa. Kim was learning the language of the country, and her tutor was name was Miriam. And Miriam was a devout Muslim. And she had a dream. She had a dream, the same dream, three nights in a row. And the dream was this figure named Jesus appeared to her and said, I am Jesus and I love you, I died for you, I arose from the dead for you, Miriam. And she'd wake up. She was like, what in the world was that? Three nights in a row, she asked Kim Furman, she said, Kim, please help me, what is this? Well, in the meantime, Miriam's mom fell deathly ill. 
This is going to mess some of your theology up, but this is what happened. She was deathly ill, and Miriam said, Mom, I've heard about this God. I don't, I don't, I don't know a lot about him, but he, he's been appearing to me. you mind if I pray for you in his name? And the mom was basically, I don't care. <laughs> you pray to I am dying. Listen, dying people are desperate. So Miriam reaches out and prays for her mom, and nothing happens. Until the next morning. Mom jumps up out of bed, running around the house, going, whoop-de-doo, something happened to me. I am not sick anymore. And she was supernaturally healed, and Miriam goes, oh, my. And she said, uh, Miss Furman, how, how do I know him? How do I come into a relationship with him? She prays to receive Christ, and then she says, I would love for somebody to teach me, like I shared in our class this morning. Praying to receive Christ is just the beginning. That's evangelism. Discipleship, it's a holistic ideal. It's, it's, it's uh, as my brother shared the other day, it's, a, it's not a major in evangelism and a minor in discipleship. It's a double major. Mm, that's good. It's a double major of evangelism and discipleship. She goes, I want to grow in my walk. Three days later, these three ladies come to Miriam's house, knocking on her door and says, we'd like to invite you to a crusade. That's something. Supernatural. Yeah, but that was, in, uh, that was in another place far, far away in a different country. Well, let me give you another example. Thank you all for asking me for examples. I just appreciate that. It makes me think you all want to really understand and learn. So this is from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. He pastored the Park Street Church and changed the name of the church. Changed the name of the church to Metropolitan Tabernacle Church. 1861 to 1891, he was the pastor of this church. Dennis Keniston writes these words, Spurgeon's life is one of those miracles. He preached his first sermon when he was 16 with the anointing and zeal. By the time he was 19, he was preaching to crowds of 5,000. Y'all with me? Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached, Brother James, he preached to 5,000 people when he was 19 years of age. You say, well, how, how can this be? God is sovereign. And the Scripture, Acts 2.17, that I quoted for you a minute ago, seems to give room for 16-year-olds preaching the gospel in that manner. I must admit, I wish we had more young men, says Keniston, who were so full of God and His Word that they cannot but speak. When Spurgeon was a young boy, I think he had like 10 or 12 siblings, had a big family, and family really couldn't afford him, so they gave him to the grandparents. Grandparents were raising him. The, the grandfather of Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a pastor of one church for 54 years. Isn't that impressive? Pastored to one church 54 years, and he would pray over his, his young grandson. He would just pray for him and love on him. And, and um, one, one time an evangelist came through and, and spent the night with, the, uh, with his grandfather, and, and Spurgeon was there. It's a true story. And the evangelist felt moved of God. He said, I believe I have a word from God for you, young man. And, and that scared Spurgeon. He's like, what, what are you talking about? That's spooky stuff. What are you talking about? He said, no, listen to me. I believe that God's anointing is on you. And one day you're going to become a pastor and you're going to preach in the largest venue 
known to man, and he did. Metropolitan Tabernacle was the mega church of the world before we even knew what a mega church was. After he finished prophesying over the boy that he would love Jesus and preach the gospel in the largest chapel in the world, these prophetic words set the course for Charles Haddon Spurgeon's life. He went and he began to dream dreams and see visions from that day forward. His heart united with the words of the Apostle Paul who wrote of being separated from his mother's womb that he might preach the gospel to the heathen, end of quote. So I got interested in Spurgeon again this week, and I began to read some of his sermons, and I came across a sermon that's really funny, really interesting. Now, Spurgeon was serving in a day that we have not yet seen at Great Hills. And I know I'm no Spurgeon, and as some brother in the church told me one day, you're no Adrian Rogers, and I'm like, absolutely, I'm not. But I'm just me, and I'm just a person with a, with a desire to see God move in our church, and more about that in, in a moment, in, in a moment, moment. So Spurgeon is in his church, and, and they have a balcony. There's like 5,000. I've heard this story before. There would be actually 6,000 there for the service in the morning, and then that 6,000 would have to get up and leave because the other 6,000 were in the street waiting to get back in. They wanted to get in. So you got, really, you got 12,000 people. And Spurgeon, he's preaching. And he goes, I feel in my spirit that there is a man. And he pointed this way. He said, there's a guy here and you mean trouble. You did not come to worship and you mean ill. And I just want you to know that's not of God. Well, lo and behold, Charles Hans Spurgeon tells a story. There was this guy who had walked in and he had his bottle of gin. Y'all know what gin is? I think it's alcohol, Mike. I don't know what it is. Is it rum? Is it gin? Is it whiskey? I don't know what it is. I just stay away from that stuff. It scares me. So anyhow, he, um, he had his gin, and he was up there, and he was hiding it in his pocket. And the only reason the guy was there is because of the crowds. I mean, they're all massive crowds of people, and he's going, man, what is this? And he's standing there looking around. He got his little gin, and Spurgeon goes, there's a man. And that guy goes, whoa. Scared the eebie-jeebies out of him. He was just like, whoa. And Spurgeon said, this is not of God. You've come for the wrong reason. You need to repent and you need to be saved. And that guy did. And Spurgeon's, his, his very words were this. Just then I looked in the direction in which he stood. I do not know why I did so, but I remarked that there might be a man in the gallery who had come in there with no good motive for even then he had a gin bottle in his pocket. The singularity of the expression struck the man. And being startled because the preacher so exactly described him, he listened attentively to the warnings which followed. This is Spurgeon. I'm quoting Spurgeon. The word reached his heart. The grace of God met him. He became converted, and he is walking humbly in the fear of God today. That's, that's powerful. Something similar happened to me like this last week. Now you're going, now you're really making me nervous. You sound like one of them charismatic, Pentecostal, Bapticostal, words, visions, knowledge, and so forth. Well, I'm just going to tell you what happened to me. Next week, if you come back. <laughs> next week. You know I'm kidding. I'm going to tell you what happened. I know I'm a little late, but I felt the Spirit of God impress me to say, and this doesn't happen to me a lot, but there's a teenager. There's a student here. I don't know if y'all were here last week, and I said... 
you've been wrong, you've been mistreated, and there's hurt, and there's pain, and God's got you here because he wants to tell you this. And as soon as I got to my office, this was 1234, the mom was on Facebook sending me a private message and saying, you will never know. what your words meant to my daughter because, and I can't tell you what she wrote, but I was amazed. I was just, I was overwhelmed by the grace of God that He would speak to me like that and, and, and I would be able to speak and, and it would be able to help. So here's my final word for you today, the concluding remarks. It's a personal word for Great Hills. Um, there are two reasons that I want to preach on this subject this morning. I know this has to do with the supernatural. I know it has to do with visions and dreams. And you could, you could say the same thing about tongues and interpretation of tongues, words of prophecy, words of knowledge. All of that realm that we as Baptists are absolutely frightened to death of. I'm honored before God today to be able to share this message with you, to share it with you that I believe it, I believe it all. I just believe it all. Baptists don't like me because I'm not a cessationist, because I believe all the gifts of the spirits are operative today. Charismatics don't like me because I don't make it all the event about tongues and prophecy and words of knowledge. I don't do that because I focus on the preached Word of God, evangelism, and discipleship. So I just got this gift. I make everybody mad. <laughs> I've always had that gift of just, just being that sand, that irritant to, to people. It's a burden. It's a burden. So let me, let me share just a little bit about my theology here for, for just a minute. Jack Deere, he was at Dallas Theological Seminary, but he had to leave. He left because he received the gift of tongues, and he said, at Dallas Theological Seminary, they don't teach this, they don't really believe it that much. And so I have an obligation. And by the way, this is great theology. He says, I need to leave. And he did. And that was the right thing to do. Because why would God impress upon somebody to do that when it's in an environment, in a place that it would scare people and it would harm the gospel? So Jack Deere had the wherewithal, the spiritual maturity to say, even though I have received this gift, I, am, I, I need to leave. And, and he did. And that was a good, that was a good thing. There's a lot I don't know. So much I don't understand, but I'm telling you, I'm so blessed to be in a city. Some of my closest friends have become these pastors of these other churches that are different from us. And, I, and we don't agree completely in theology, but we love each other and I find out that there's, there's a lot of commonality between us and them, or me and them. So, Brother Danny, are we going to start focusing on tongues and prophecies and dreams and visions? Not really. We're going to focus on the Word of God, evangelism, discipleship. That's what, that's, that's, that's what God's impressed me to do. That's what we need to be doing in our church. Speaking of Facebook, let me give a message about Facebook for just a moment. Well, 
I receive a lot of Facebook comments, requests, tweets, emails, phone calls, not only from Austin, but literally all over the nation. You say, well, whoop-de-doo, aren't you something? I'm, I'm nothing. I'm a nobody. And I try to answer as many of them as I can, but I just can't, I can't always get to a response. So I want you to have mercy on me, and please forgive me if I don't respond to you. Jonathan Edwards wrote these words, when the church is revived, so is the devil. (laughs) I agree. I believe that God is, he is, he is up to something. He is up to something in our church. And I believe with all my heart, God is blessing and desires to bless even more our church. And I, I want to speak this word to you, then, then I'm going to be done, because this is a really a good message that God gave me this week, and it goes like this. The reason God oftentimes doesn't bless Great Hills, and we see very little growth and very little movement among the, among the people during our invitation, is because we, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And the primary way that many of you are grieving the Holy Spirit is bitterness. And I want you to receive this. There's bitterness in our camp. And when you have bitterness toward me, and many of you do, recently I was compared to Obama, I was called fallacious, I was called ridiculous, and that was before I preached this sermon. (laughs) You say, well, who told you that? I'd just like to give them a piece of my mind. Doesn't matter. Satan's already beaten me almost to death over fallacious, ridiculous, Obama-like, hurt to the core. Sobbed and wept before God at the altar, and I was asking Ross to pray for me. Your pastor needed prayer. Would you just pray for me, Ross, that I wouldn't take those words to heart because I take them to my spirit. And Satan just demolishes me, has a field day on me when I take those evil words from some of you sitting right in this church. Don't want to leave anybody out. And there's bitterness. And when there is bitterness, the Spirit of God will not move. He will not move in a church until you say, God, have mercy on him. I forgive him. He's a babbling idiot sometimes, but I forgive him. I forgive her. I just want to be right with you, God. I want to be in fellowship with you. And that draws the Holy Spirit of God. It draws his presence to us. It draws him to us. Y'all ask me a lot of times, man, pastor, you preached your heart out. gave the invitation. Two people came forward. Everybody said no. (laughs) But I believe in my heart there's coming a day when the bitterness is dissipated over the name of the change, over the fact I don't wear a coat, Terry wears blue jeans. That still just, just still just just grinds on people. You got to let that go. We're way beyond that. Okay, we, we really need to let that go. Terry's not going to put a coat and tie on. It's strangling. He's just, he's just not going to do that. But I might. I'm thinking next week, I think I'm just going to wear a coat and tie. I think I am. 
And, and many of you will come up to me and go, that's good, brother. You look like you should look. And I'm like, no, I don't. I look like you. And that's okay. I, some of you wear coats and ties, and I just want you to know what I think about that. I think that's wonderful because that's what you feel comfortable in wearing, and you look amazing. Next week, I'm going to look amazing. I'm going to wear a coat and a tie. Oh, mercy, I am. It's going to be hot, but I'm going to become all things to all people so that we can win some. The next week, I'm going to wear a tank top and cut off shorts. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right, so we're done. It's been, it's been six years since my anniversary, and I am I really pray, if y'all will keep me, I, I want to stay, I mean, we want to, we want to stay. If, if y'all, if you'll keep me, we'll, we'll stay. Thank you. Mm. You're very kind, thank you. We want to, um, why don't you go ahead and remain standing. Um, some of y'all are standing clapping because y'all think, well, if I do that, he'll, he'll be quiet, you know, <laughs> we'll go. But Ashley and I just feel like we really are coming into the ministry here. Uh, Greg Mott at First Houston said, you know, when you go there, it's going to take you seven years. I, I want to say, you're an idiot. That don't, don't take me no seven years. I mean, you just don't know me. And God said, oh, you little arrogant fella. It's going to take you seven years before you become the pastor of Great Hills. And so I'd be a fool to leave, you know, after going through all that. If you're here today and you want to become a part of our church, man, we, we want you to become a part of, of Great Hills. If you're here today and you need Jesus as your Savior, I pray. I pray that He is revealing Himself to you. The Holy Spirit is making Jesus so grand and in your presence, and you just can't wait to grab a hold of Him through faith and through repentance. And I, I invite you to receive Him today. Maybe, you, maybe some of you are like me last week. You just beat up and you're just tired and you're just weeping inside. You just need somebody to pray for. Now, don't everybody go to Ross. Bless his soul. Where's Ross? <laughs> Is he here? Bless you, Ross. He's one of the most spiritual men I know. I think that's why I wanted to, wanted to go, go to him. So... So maybe uh, you'll go to Brother Daniel or the Spencers or Brother James Tisdale, pastor, loves God, anointed of God, James Tisdale, or, or farmers over here. Maybe you guys could just kind of help me out and spread out around here. And we, you may want to come, just pray and just say, man, I'm, I'm having a burden here and I need, I need help. Man, I just need this to be lifted off of me. And, and you feel free. You feel the Holy Spirit just giving you a freedom to come and to share. So why don't you do that? Let me, let me pray for you, okay? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you, Holy Spirit of God. We don't want to grieve you or quench you. We want to recognize you. We're not afraid of you. You are God, and you, you're within us as the children of God. The Spirit of Him who rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. Thank you, Lord, for broken hearts and distance relationships that are just struggling, God, in marriages, living in the same home, and yet, Lord, they're zip codes apart. Lord, help that couple today. Maybe they can come and we can pray with them, encourage them, bless 
bless that bitter soul. Would you bless him, Lord, and would you bless her? Help them, God, to see that life is really, really too short. Let's, let's love and let's move forward with forgiveness and joy. Lord, thank you for the body of Christ here at Great Hills. We're asking you now, oh, Holy Spirit of God, shine upon us, speak to us, love on us, and, and allow us to love on one another even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you as you sing. Terry, you lead us, brother.